Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special. And they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Hey, this is Dylan, the producer for Pantsuit Politics and The Nuanced Life. I'm really excited to share this Christmas gift from our team to you. As you know, Sarah and Beth have a book coming out on February 5th called I Think You're Wrong, But I'm Listening, a guide to grace-filled political conversations. You can learn more about the book and pre-order your copy at ithinkyou'rewrongbutimlistening.com. We think the message of this book is important and timely, and we are happy to share chapter one with you here. Enjoy and happy holidays. Part 1. Start with you. Chapter 1. We should talk politics. We all know the rule. The rule governs church functions, social outings, and family gatherings. The rule is passed down through generations, intended to with particular care by women. The rule is for our own good. The rule prevents fights and conflicts and all appearances of discomfort. The rule is simple. Don't talk politics or religion. It's rude. It's tacky. It's unladylike. It will ruin Thanksgiving, ensure your first time teaching Sunday school is your last, quickly end a first date, maybe cost you a promotion. We were both taught at a young age that mentioning anything political is not appropriate in polite conversation, especially for women. The phrase, not to get political, is embedded in our vocabularies and jumps out of our mouths almost reflexively. 
at family dinners, our grandmothers discouraged any discussion of the latest political scandal or presidential outrage, glossing over uncomfortable moments by ushering everyone towards dessert. Over many years of Sunday suppers, holiday parties, and family reunions, we learned that women don't make people uncomfortable, especially with their opinions about politics. It hasn't always been this way, and it doesn't have to stay this way. There is a way out of this click-baiting, hyper-polarized, road-to-nowhere cycle. We just have to learn to talk to each other again. History shows that we have the capacity for problem-solving, even through vigorous disagreement. Our founding fathers and mothers believed in talking politics. Many historians cite the desire to assemble and debate as central to America itself. Hannah Arendt in On Revolution argued, that the people went to the town assemblies as their representatives later were to go to the famous conventions, neither exclusively because of duty nor, and even less, to serve their own interest, but most of all because they enjoyed the discussions, the deliberations, and the making of decisions. They enjoyed it. Somewhere along the way, we lost our revolutionary passion for talking about the issues that affect our country and our lives. We decided that conversational conflict is impolite at best and dangerous at worst. Unfortunately, our attempts to avoid these uncomfortable moments have backfired. In our efforts to protect relationships from political tension, we have instead escalated that tension. Because the reality is that we never stopped talking politics altogether. We stopped talking politics with people who disagree with us. We changed, you shouldn't talk about politics, to, you should talk only to people who reinforce your worldview, instead of giving ourselves the opportunity to be molded and informed and tested by others' opinions. We allowed our opinions and our hearts to harden. We sorted ourselves, engaging only with those who are on our side. We also sorted others based solely on assumptions about their hardened opinions. In the process, we subconsciously and constantly increased the stakes in believing that our personal perspectives are accurate and morally superior. Today, if and when we do enter a discussion with someone from the other side, we're ready for battle, not dialogue. The rule that was supposed to prevent others' discomfort has become a weapon to protect us from our own. Somehow, a concern about others' feelings has morphed into an obsession with clinging to our talking points, as though those talking points form the very basis of who we are and what we stand for. We don't want to be challenged or even questioned because we believe there is too much at stake. We have tied together our religious beliefs, our pride in our upbringings, and our policy positions until they've become like a tangled mess of necklaces that we shove in a drawer, still treasured but unwearable. And over time, we have lost the ability to sort out why we believe what we believe about our neighbors, and perhaps even about ourselves. Approval ratings for politicians in both parties have bottomed out, and our faith in public and private institutions is at an all-time low. It's no wonder that protests turn violent so regularly that we hardly notice. These were once the spaces, from political parties to pews to protest, where we worked out our disagreements, 
or at least got comfortable hearing opposing opinions. We've stopped practicing good conversations. We've disconnected from one another. If the ramifications of political conversation ended at even the most contentious dinner table, or if these uncomfortable situations were simply a cable television drama that we could turn off, our instincts to confirm our beliefs and avoid any conversations that challenge them wouldn't be so dangerous. Perhaps we could continue on the path of tuning out the cacophony of political debate, but the reality is that we cannot opt out of the real consequences of politics in our lives. Politics becomes policy, and policy is the roadmap for the more than 500,000 elected officials who make decisions every single day. Decisions that determine the roads we drive on, the schools our children attend, the wars we wage, and the taxes we pay. When we struggle at all levels to get anything done— to pass budgets, confirm judicial nominees, and perform even the most basic functions of government, like ensuring our water is safe to drink. It is our daily lives that are affected. This dysfunction isn't what we want for our children, and it shouldn't be what we want for ourselves. Regular people, parents and non-parents, people of faith and atheists, students and teachers, people of all backgrounds and cultures— have to discuss how we want our governments to function and what we want our country to become. We need people who are worried about gas prices and their 401ks and student loan interest rates and laundry and daycare to talk about domestic policy. We need people who remember the draft and the uncle who died in Afghanistan and the friend who missioned abroad in Spain to talk about foreign policy. We need parents of children with special needs and gifts talking about education policy. We need people who work help desks across the United States thinking about cybersecurity. We need to show up with the entirety of our life experiences for these conversations. We need to bring our voices and perspectives to the table calmly with respect for ourselves and one another, recognizing that we do not live alone. America has never been and will never be homogenous. We are here to bump up against each other. We need to bring our faith and values, not just to specific issues, but to the process of engaging in civil discourse. We can share our perspectives on even the most controversial and personal topics. Doing so will de-escalate the rhetoric and open pathways for solutions, innovation, and a stronger national identity. Others will disagree with us. We have to expect that. Debate is not a dirty word, even if you feel underinformed or ill-prepared. It is easy to envision the famous paintings of the Constitutional Convention and think of our founding mothers and fathers as a monolithic group who always agreed. However, anyone who has sung along to Lin-Manuel Miranda's blockbuster Broadway musical Hamilton knows nothing could be further from the truth. Our patriotic ancestors battled it out over everything from war strategies to presidential pageantry. In fact, let us not forget that they got it plain wrong with the Articles of Confederation before they finally settled on the Constitution we now enshrine as infallible. They didn't give up because it was hard, and neither should we. It is nothing short of our patriotic duty to engage with one another as Americans, and not only with those Americans who look like us 
and act like us and agree with us. We face difficult challenges as a country. We face problems that won't be solved in our lifetimes. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try. Throwing our hands up in frustration is a natural reaction to a problem as big as America's current political climate. But that's only because we feel so disconnected from America's greatest strength, each other. Learning to have healthy conflict with each other over political challenges is of utmost importance. In fact, it is a spiritual imperative. We do not demonstrate love toward our neighbors by demonizing them over how they feel about tax policy or reproductive rights. We do not turn the other cheek when we treat politics as an insular sphere in which fighting fire with fire is the only way. We do not live as the hands and feet of a loving creator when we opt out of the processes that dictate roads and bridges, school curriculum and water treatment, war and peace. Neither stridence nor apathy is a virtue. Like it or not, the decisions our government both makes and does not make impact every aspect of our lives. Democratic societies, like churches, are a body. We all affect each other. We can't sit it out. We can't move forward if we refuse to ask each other where we want to go. Talking politics not only has the power to make our communities, states, and country better, but it also has the power to make us better as individuals. Connecting with one another isn't just the source of American strength. It is also the source of faith, hope, love, and understanding. Our conversations help us to understand on a much deeper level many of the issues that tear America apart. Talking about subjects most people studiously avoid in mixed political company helps us to see where we are right, where we are wrong, and where we have more to learn. More than that, talking with one another helps us to better understand ourselves to clarify our values and priorities, and to confront weaknesses and attitudes we could have too easily ignored. And here's the most surprising thing the two of us have found in talking for a few hours each week about everything from trade policy to the role of the Supreme Court. We enjoy it. Our granny's hearts may have been in the right place with all their shushing, but we'd rather channel our inner Abigail Adams than take a second helping of pie. Adam said, if we mean to have heroes, statesmen, and philosophers, we should have learned women. And that's what we intend to help each other become. Engaging in the issues of our time with people we love, or simply people who love this country as much as we do, is fun. That doesn't mean it's easy. It isn't. But in the immortal words of Jimmy Dugan in A League of Their Own, it's supposed to be hard. If it wasn't hard, everyone would do it. The hard is what makes it great. So let's do the hard but enjoyable work begun by our founding fathers and mothers. Let's talk politics. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. 
They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy. In very different ways, the two of us have been talking politics our whole lives. I learned to talk early and never really stopped, especially as an only child encouraged by the doting adults in my life. When I was young, I thought I had a love of the stage and should pursue acting. Eventually, I realized it wasn't the stage that I loved. It was the microphone. I had plenty of opinions, especially about politics, ready to share. To exactly no one's surprise, I was named most talkative in high school. Of course, a young woman with passionate political opinions wasn't always well-received. I spent most of my childhood battling peers and some adults who constantly told me to tone it down if I wanted to be liked. Still, 
With the dream of one day running for office always in the back of my mind, I majored in political science and attended law school in Washington, D.C. After graduation, I began working in politics, first for Hillary Clinton's 2007 presidential campaign and then as a legislative aide in the United States Senate. However, my political pursuits took a major detour in 2009 when I convinced my husband, Nicholas, to move to my hometown of Paducah, Kentucky before the birth of our first son. I rebuilt my life as a stay-at-home mom to, eventually, three boys and as a mommy blogger. By 2015, I had just begun to tiptoe back into the political arena and had recently graduated from Emerge Kentucky, a training program for Democratic women considering public office. My husband, a passionate podcast listener, kept pestering me to start a podcast. I had always loved talking politics, but I was no longer a Capitol Hill staffer or even a practicing lawyer. Who would care what I had to say? I was interested in how women worked in the political arena, and I knew that topic would increase in importance with what seemed like the inevitable candidacy of Hillary Clinton in 2016. So I thought, I should start interviewing women in politics. I did a few interviews, found them a little boring, and did nothing with the files for months. Talking politics by myself was simply too scary. Enter Beth. Sarah and I first met our freshman year of college at Transylvania University. Just as we do now, we had very different approaches to life then, and despite being in the same sorority, our paths were more parallel than intertwined. By 2015, we were close enough to be friends on Facebook, brought together again by our similar journeys toward natural birth, a story for another chapter. I had reached out for advice several times knowing that Sarah had had two successful home births, and we struck up a casual friendship that eventually led to me writing guest posts for Sarah's blog while I was on maternity leave. In the summer of 2015, I wrote a guest post with a one-word title. That one word would become the clarion call of our podcast and eventually this book, Nuance. In a reaction to the ever-increasing Facebook vitriol, I suggested a simple hashtag of nuance to signal the acknowledgement of the complexity behind issues, complexity that doesn't always fit in a status update. I wrote, This summer, the internet appears to have caught a case of false dichotomy-itis. With every opinion on a major news story comes a flurry of memes, charts, and comments announcing that that's your wrong opinion, and this is my right assertion of reality, and our positions on this topic are mutually exclusive. It seems we need a way to acknowledge that the limited characters in our social media discourse don't always afford space for a complete expression of thought. I hate to diagnose a problem without offering a cure, so here's my proposal. If you're posting about current events or other controversial topics, or topics that you can't believe are controversial, but trust me, they will be when you expose them to the scrutiny of your Facebook friends, just end the post with hashtag nuance as a sort of modern footnote telling the reader, I have more to say, but I'm out of time and you're out of interest. Please don't make a bunch of weird assumptions based on this post, cool? I understand that the world really doesn't need another hashtag, but it seems from scrolling my feeds that we need a short way to introduce some fine print on our tweets and status updates. Here's the thing. We don't have to stake out extremes, and doing so is reductive and unworthy of our democracy. Our social media discourse matters, so we should elevate it by asking questions, fleshing out ideas, and respectfully engaging with each other. If we can't or won't do these things, we can at least stop assuming that someone is against everything we believe in based on a single tweet. 
You can believe in gun control and care about the Second Amendment. You can acknowledge the existence of man-made climate change and God. For that matter, you can even acknowledge global warming on a snowy day. You can be against drug use and pro-legalization. You can pray every night and believe prayer in school is problematic. We can and should examine our positions and allow for depth in both our own perspectives and the perspectives of others. Go forth and tweet, Facebook, and blog. Just make space for the entirety of the conversation. The reaction to the post across both our social media channels was a resounding amen. Sarah immediately realized that one more interview show wasn't what the world needed. The world needed nuance. Sarah suggested that we start a podcast, and so we decided to start talking politics. Or at least in retrospect, it seems that simple. In reality, I had serious trepidation. While Sarah had spent a lifetime being told she was unlikable because she shared her opinions, I had built a successful career on being likable and learning to keep my opinions to myself in the process. Raised on a small dairy farm in western Kentucky, I was always the star student and rewarded leader. Until very recently, a wall in my childhood home was covered with my trophies, plaques, and ribbons. These awards, as well as the leadership roles I was asked to take in college, taught me one thing. Women are rewarded for doing what is expected of them and making everyone around them feel good in the process. We were once asked by Matt Marr on his podcast, The Dear Maddie Show, what the title of our memoirs would be. I answered without hesitation, beige wallpaper. I had gone to law school because it was expected of me and had taken a high-paying law firm job afterward because how could I say no? I had been taught over and over that when you have the ability to do something, you always have the responsibility to do it. But I was never happy. I tried different practice areas, bouncing from domestic relations to general litigation to corporate bankruptcy work, where I stuck it out for almost five years. After my first daughter was born, I used the skills built over a lifetime of making people comfortable to try a career in human resources. I pitched my firm on a human resources position and was hired for it. I went on to become the firm's chief people officer, but I was still miserable. I was a walking complaint department, a workplace therapist, and a sounding board. I tried reinventing my position, but I couldn't find the right fit. Something was missing in my life and I started worrying that the only fitting epitaph on my gravestone would say, we don't know her, but she made us feel good. So how does a woman trained to make people comfortable begin doing the exact thing that makes so many of us uncomfortable? How does she talk politics? How does she talk politics as a woman, as a people pleaser, and as someone who typically became whatever she needed to become based on the situation? We sat down to our microphones with those questions and so many more in our ears. I on the floor in my closet, surrounded by my corporate wardrobe, and Sarah barricaded in her bedroom, still filled with baby gear from her third son, born earlier that year. We struggled with getting the volume right in our recordings because Sarah tended to speak loudly and soulfully, while my self-described delicious dish voice barely registered on the microphone. Sarah was fiery and excited, which led her to interrupt often. I, always editing myself and trying to balance my perspective with Sarah's, needed painfully long pauses after Sarah spoke to collect my thoughts. We did as much research and preparation as we could while juggling our families and careers. When we started the podcast, Sarah had three boys, six-year-old Griffin, 
four-year-old Amos, and nine-month-old Felix. I had two girls, newborn Ellen and four-year-old Jane. We recorded before work and after putting the kids in bed. Sarah worried that no one would care what she had to say, that she might not really know what she was talking about, or that she could say something that would make someone angry or hurt their feelings. I worried that people would listen and realize how little they knew about me. More than that, I worried about how little I knew about myself. But we talked like two old friends reconnecting and creating a hobby that felt like something between a college elective and therapy. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look, and I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, a.k.a. problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. 
Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Since our less than auspicious beginnings, we have realized that being women talking about politics isn't a liability, it's an asset. For far too long, the voices of women, particularly in the media, have been largely excluded. While many women journalists have been doing thorough and expert reporting for decades, rarely have women shown up to share their opinions. The fact that we can all easily list well-known women pundits on two hands is indicative of the problem, not representative of any positive movement for change. Men dominate politics. But we discovered almost immediately after starting our podcast that both women and men desperately want to hear another perspective. Despite a saturated political media market, the two of us couldn't find the kind of political conversations we were looking for. So we decided to have those conversations ourselves. Together, we brought to the discussion a host of experiences that were not usually represented. We were both daughters and families that had aging grandparents and parents, so we understood the caregiving roles that many adults had to play. We were mothers to small children, so issues of child care, public education, and reproductive health had real-life consequences in our daily lives. Our professional experiences encompassed working outside the home full-time during motherhood, maintaining a full-time focus on raising children, and pursuing entrepreneurship. Our families were laboratories for the future of work and the ever-changing economy. We started to see that these everyday experiences we brought to the table as women didn't disqualify us, but rather made us different kinds of experts. We weren't sociologists, scientists, or researchers. Neither were we professional journalists, government bureaucrats, or pundits. We were just two women outside the Beltway admitting their biases and confusion and emotions around issues. This struck a chord with others out there just like us who were hungry for an honest dialogue that was grounded in context and values rather than drama and a false sense of neutrality. We worked on presenting background information to the best of our abilities, never assuming our listeners were foreign policy experts or lawyers or even particularly knowledgeable about politics. We also tried to avoid condescension, and to treat our listeners with respect. We wanted the complexity, and we assumed our listeners did too. We acknowledged our partisan leanings at the beginning of every show by introducing ourselves as Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. We did not do this because we wanted to frame our conversations as equal showdowns between two sides. Instead, we wanted to acknowledge our worldviews so we could get to the more important work of figuring out the realities of the issues we were discussing and the possibilities for moving forward. We also made a commitment to be vulnerable and honest. We tried not to edit ourselves and to verbally acknowledge when we were feeling angry, frustrated, or attacked. We did not see ourselves as representatives of the Democratic Party or GOP and therefore did not feel any obligation to stick to the party talking points. If we were disappointed in our party leaders, we said so. There were no outside influences pulling the strings. Our producers were our husbands, who did our sound engineering, 
and complained about our tendency to say, um, and listeners who financially contributed to the podcast. So we felt the freedom to decide what to cover and when and how to cover it, to talk in depth about events in our own lives that had informed our opinions on issues. If we ever worried that what we said could be misinterpreted, we expressed that fear and said it anyway. And we found that our listeners, through emails and comments on social media, responded with the same amount of honesty and vulnerability. It's been interesting to see the reactions to our conversations. Some people are confused. When they hear that one of us is liberal and one is conservative, they expect a debate format. And why wouldn't they? Partisan sparring is the only form of discussion making its way to our televisions, radios, and feeds. Anytime we receive feedback that we should disagree more often, we talk with our listeners openly about that feedback. There are two molds our podcast could fit into, and both of those molds would probably be easier, and almost certainly more profitable, than what we're doing today. We could be a combative debate show, or... We could pick one side and be yet another place where listeners validate their worldviews. But molds are for jello, not people. We didn't want that for ourselves, and we don't want that for you either. In every discussion, we recommit to our promise. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. We share the backstory of our podcast because we want you to know that if we can have these conversations, so can you. We want you to know that what we see on television and hear on the radio doesn't have to be the blueprint for talking with our friends and neighbors and fellow church members. What creates clicks online or sells ads during prime time doesn't have to drive the conversations in our living rooms. We can do better. By talking politics honestly and earnestly as yourself— not as a representative of the party to which you happen to be registered, or as a polite foil for the person in your life who is more impassioned about politics than you are. You add your unique experiences and opinions and perspective to a space that needs you. You also sign up to be vulnerable, to be challenged, and to evolve. You know how some people seem to freeze at a point in time? They decide they don't want to learn another new technology. They're happy with their hair, and they found the perfect brand of jeans that they're staying with. The music from their high school days makes them happy, so that's all they listen to. Curiously and charmingly, these folks become like wax statues for particular eras. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's not what we want for our brains, especially when the world is changing faster all the time. The righteousness of unchallenged thought freezes us in time. We double and triple down on opinions, even as some of the information that we're basing those opinions on changes. We cling to views, even when those views are based on experiences that are divorced from the present and the future. The world changes. We need to be vigilant about what stands the test of time and what needs to change with it. If you never engage with the world, the world, full of people you love and people who get on your nerves— never has a chance to push and pull you in new directions. As we'll discuss at length throughout this book, this doesn't mean changing the essential character of who you are or abandoning your most deeply held principles. There are core principles that shouldn't be compromised. And as we mentioned earlier, the perspective you bring, shaped by who you are and what you stand behind, is irreplaceable. 
We aren't asking you to throw out your values and beliefs, abandon your upbringing, or turn your back on the people and groups that are important to you. We also aren't asking you to agree with either of us or anyone else. Our prevailing philosophy is you do you. Be who you were made to be, make your own decisions, and live your best life. We just want you to actually do you, not Rachel Maddow or Sean Hannity, based on the experiences that you're having every day and the values you want to infuse into your life. And we want you to do you with your friends and neighbors and fellow parishioners and colleagues. Political pundits have become fond of discussing partisan politics as tribal. We don't want your tribe to be your political party. We want it to be the communities in which you live, worship, and work, diverse in thought as they may be. Engaging with other people is never easy, but it is always worth it. Engaging with other people about politics is no different. Let yourself take that chance. Let yourself rise to the challenge. Your ability to stretch and grow will surprise you, and so will the people around you. Once people see you as a person willing to have thoughtful, curious, calm discussions, you will have all kinds of interesting conversations that seemed impossible a year ago. People you thought you understood will leave you slack-jawed in awe of their empathy and compassion. People you thought were kind listeners will surprise you with their passionate and previously unshared thoughts on policy. You'll have new appreciation for the people around you, new ideas about how to solve problems in your own life and in the public sphere, and perhaps new inspiration about your place in the tapestry of our democracy. Talking politics is a gift to yourself and to the world. Ultimately, politics is really about people. People are never boring, and people belong together. We are meant to hash out how we want to live in community with one another. We're meant to sort out our different beliefs about what government should and shouldn't do, what laws and programs we do and don't need, and how we should and shouldn't spend taxpayer dollars. Our description might sound far-fetched given the pitch of political conversations today. Some prep work is essential for the shift in conversation that we're describing. Over the next several chapters, we're going to talk about questions you need to ask yourself before you are ready to open the door to engaging with other people. Then in part two, we'll share our specific thoughts about having better dialogue on contentious topics. By the end of this book, we hope that you'll find, as the two of us have, that continuous engagement in political conversation from a place of loving kindness is a deeply enriching practice. Continue the conversation. I love exercises and checklists that help me track my progress. I love a good bullet journal, app, or program to assure me that I'm engaged in an effort that will make a difference. Beth was a top student as a child and is a workaholic as an adult. Given our personalities, it seems only fitting that we end each chapter with some homework. More than that, we want to make sure that we're sharing ideas that serve as catalysts for your thinking and action. So, we are closing with questions and thoughts that we hope help you further explore and apply the chapter's theme in your life. And because our faith so influences our thoughts, we're leaving for those of like mind a passage of scripture that they might find applicable. 1. Have you been given the message that you shouldn't talk about politics or religion? If you have, what effect has it had on you? Do you think that being a man or woman influenced the messages you received? 2. When was the last time you engaged in a political conversation with someone who disagreed with you? How did you leave that interaction feeling? 
How did the conversation impact your relationship with that person? Three, because you cannot have too much Abigail Adams. Here are some more thoughts from her that we feel are particularly relevant as we all begin to engage in politics again. These are times in which a genius would wish to live. It is not in the still calm of life or the repose of a Pacific station that great characters are formed. The habits of a vigorous mind are formed in contending with difficulties. Great necessities call out great virtues. When a mind is raised and animated by scenes that engage the heart, then those qualities which would otherwise lay dormant wake into life and form the character of the hero and the statesman. How might this passage impact your thoughts about discussing politics with people with differing opinions? 4. Ephesians 4 tells us that we are all members of one body and that we should not let the sun go down while we are still angry, verses 25 through 26. The chapter ends, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you, verse 32. Paul's instructions feel like important advice today. Consider how his words in this chapter counsel us to participate politically.